Well, good morning. My name is uh, Mike McNichols, as you can see by my name tag. And it, it is my privilege to be with you this morning. It is a Labor Day weekend where in all other parts of the country people go away, but why would you go away on a long weekend in Orange County? We have all the stuff, right? So tomorrow, yes, is Labor Day. It's also my birthday tomorrow. Think about it. Birthday, Labor Day. My mother, who passed away just a couple months ago, um, about a year ago, I was reminding her, I said, you know, Mom, my next birthday is going to be actually on Labor Day. Isn't that great? And she says, it wasn't all that great when I was in labor with you in the first place. <laughs> but I think it's kind of great. Well, as um, Susan was pointing out, this, it's, it's Labor Day weekend kind of signals the end of summer. It's not really the end of summer, technically speaking. We have a few more weeks to go. But it does still mark the transition from, you know, vacations and our perception of longer days and moves us back to school, back to work, with our eye sort of cast off to the holiday season that will fall upon us like an avalanche any time now. And this weekend also marks the end of the kind of in-between time here at Holy Trinity as, as Jordan prepares to step into his new role as pastor. Our gospel reading this morning has a great deal to do with change, and it's from a text that's certainly familiar to most of us, most of the world even. Uh, in Henry Nouwen's fine book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, he talks about going to St. Petersburg in Russia to just sit before Rembrandt's painting of The Return of the Prodigal Son just to meditate on it. And he does this day after day for hours at a time. And this painting, I'm sure you've seen it, it, it depicts the, this poor wretched son falling into the arms of his father. Uh, Nowen spent hours staring at it, and, and he, as he did, he began to see new things, he said. There would suddenly be the kind of faded image of a person that you don't know who that person is. It's kind of a ghostly figure, and he speculates as to who this person might be and why they're standing in the shadows. Or, or looking at a, at a subtle expression on one of the faces and wondering what was going on in the mind of that particular person. And a, and a text like this one, a story like this one, if you spend enough time in it, gazing at it, so to speak, it, it can really impact you in a very similar way. You, you see things that you missed the last time that you looked at it. Maybe at one time you related to the lost son, the, the prodigal son. And, uh, but this time when you read it, maybe you relate to the father or even the older brother who, who actually comes in a little bit later in the story. But when we read it, it just really comes to life like so many of the stories in the Gospels do. And it's like Martin Luther said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And certainly... His words apply to this text of Scripture. Well, the one that we come to know the best in the story is the younger son. He played fast and loose, not only with his inheritance, but also with his family's dignity. To ask for the inheritance early was, was not only to violate his relationship to his older brother by leaving the older brother behind and taking what he thought was his prematurely, but it was also to reveal his wish that, that the father were already dead because that's how you get your inheritance. The son has committed a, a cultural and familial violation, and he then squanders his wealth. And now we meet him very quickly in the story as a complete and total wreck. But the character of the father is a bit more one-dimensional, we might say, in that we, we don't get to really look at his life in the time between the son's demand for his inheritance and then at his tragic 
returned. The father is consistent all the way through. He's generous in giving the son what he wants, what he demands, and he's generous toward the son when the son returns in disgrace. There's not any real change in the father that we can see. But the son changes a great deal, doesn't he? He begins as a kind of arrogant, selfish punk who has little regard for anyone other than himself. And then he leaves for the distant country, acting as if he's a a kind of bold adventurer, anxious to get out of Dodge and leave all the provincial hicks behind. Then he graduates into rampant hedonism, like a newly rich rock star who has no idea how money even works and and thinks that the abundance he has come to enjoy is never-ending. But once the sun is broke and all of his no-account partier friends desert him, he devolves into a a poverty-stricken has-been without enough money in his pocket to buy a sandwich, let alone a friend. It's only after all of that happens, it's only afterward, that a famine hits the country. See, up to this point, the, the son might have thought that he could count on his former friends, maybe do a little little couch surfing for a while, share a meal here and there, and just get by. But once the famine hit, everybody would have been struggling. So there, there would be no offers of hospitality extended to him. So now the son was not only poor, but he was also starving. Now the son has changed again when he submits himself to harsh manual labor. Now, this is something he probably never had to do in his entire life. After all, his his father was rich and had employees, hired hands who did all the work. But now the son has got to labor in order to earn just a crumb of bread. And he even envies this slop that he dishes out to the pigs for their dinner. Now, there's another change, one more change that the son experiences in the story. He recognizes that his status as a rich man's son, a a son who should one day inherit half of the father's estate, is gone for good. He's dead. But he has learned how to do dirty, grubby, filthy work. And so now he realizes that he's got something to offer the father in exchange for food to eat. He can become a hired hand since he is no longer a son. And that's fine with him as long as he can fill his stomach. See, primal needs like that are just basic to human life, aren't they? And and they can surpass all others in their intensity when there is a lack of resource. Well, I threw out a whole lot of changes in a short text. But there's one thing that doesn't seem to change in the son, and that is his apparent obliviousness to the need for repentance. I mean, sure, he, he, he plans to confess his sins to his father, But really, all he's going to do is tell the father what the father already knows about him. What's really driving him is not his sorrow over what he has done. He doesn't really seem to be remorseful because he realizes he squandered the gift of his inheritance. He's driven primarily by hunger. He wants food to eat. When he came to himself, as the text tells us, while feeding the pigs, It was the memory of the quality of the meals that his father's hired hands enjoyed that prompted the idea of returning home. He didn't come back because of a broken heart because of his own actions. He came back because his stomach was empty. And so, when the father welcomes the younger son home, not even allowing him to speak out the confession that he so diligently practiced on his way, 
The father welcomes the son who is not fully stripped of his, own, of his old self. He welcomes a son who is still flawed and still broken, a son who probably hasn't completely learned his lesson yet, a son who could very well mess things up again. And the father probably knows all of this, but he just doesn't seem to care. He knows that he has become dead to the son in terms of inheritance, but he knows that he isn't actually dead. It was the son who had died, the arrogant, selfish, privileged, wealthy son who had left home and family had now just up and died. That person no longer existed. The son who returned home, the son who was now alive, was a shattered son, a son with nothing to offer except the labor that might be demanded of him, a son who was still just a bit clueless about how broken relationships are restored. Well, the father does restore the son to his place in the family, but it just isn't the same son. A lot has happened since the son left home, and the son will never be the same. He might get cleaned up, might get fed, wrapped in an expensive robe, but he will always bear the scars of his misadventure, and he should always be astonished by the healing balm that was poured out on him. And so as we read the story, this parable, we do wish the best for the son, don't we? We hope it turns out okay for him. But this much we do know, that in many ways, this son has been changed. Well, Jesus tells this story, he tells this parable in response to criticism coming from the religious leaders who were bothered that he was spending time with tax collectors and sinners. It's a story about God's generosity that has has scandalized, that scandalized the religious leaders, but has brought hope to people for 2,000 years. But it occurs to me that it's also about how God continues to be generously at work in us in the midst of the changes that occur in our lives. You know, the father in this story, whether the son left home or not, had to keep working. He kept at it. There was property to be maintained, hired hands to oversee, trade to be conducted. In the son's absence, the father would continue to do what the father had always done. But in this story, we can just imagine the father casting glances at the far horizon as he did his work, looking for a sign that his son just might come home. The father stood at the ready to receive his lost son without even caring if the son was sorry for what he had done. He did it without caring if the son had, had even contracted a disease of some kind while he was off in his adventures, or maybe he was going to bring some of his hoodlum friends home with him to live at the house and crash. The father just didn't seem to care. He was always poised and ready to welcome his son home. And we don't even hear any words of forgiveness spoken by the father. Forgiveness is assumed in the welcome. The father has already forgiven the son, so the son's scripted confession is just unnecessary. The love of the father is not only generous, it's in a way scandalous and indulgent, even playful. 
Now, now many people would really line up on the side of the religious leaders and say, oh, come on, this, this kid's got to jump through some hoops to earn his way back. Look at all that he's done. But no, as far as the father is concerned, his son, his damaged and changed son, was dead and is now alive. The only thing left to do is to have a party. So it's a lot about change in this story. And we're always changing. We don't always notice that the change is happening, except when we're aware of disruptions or crises in our lives and and start experiencing all the transitions that follow those changes. You know, I've, I've worked for a number of organizations in my life. A number of you have done that as well. I always envy those people who do that one thing and stay with that one thing. I'm just not one of those people, you know. I've worked for the military for four years in the Navy. I've worked for school systems. I've worked for a big company, for church, for a seminary, all these various organizations. And one thing that I've learned, and you probably have too, is that they change over time. They do. But we don't often notice how much we are being changed in the midst of all of that. In our work, We've probably learned new skills, we've developed new relationships, and we've grown in ways that we probably don't recognize until much later in our lives. Now, some of the changes that we might experience in these organizations could be difficult ones, like when downsizing occurs or or when choices need to be made between a disruptive transfer to a new location or just the loss of your job. And very often in these changes, we end up wrestling with our core identities and even with our sense of vocation. Well, there certainly have been changes here, haven't there, at Holy Trinity? But the news about Todd moving to Nashville and Jordan moving here, it's not new, is it? It's stuff we've known about for a while. And we've all been occupying this kind of liminal space, this time of transition that's bookended by the departure of one leader and the arrival of another. But we haven't occupied this space statically. In the waiting, we too have been changed, hopefully in more life-giving ways than the lost son in our story. We've been changed not only by circumstances, but by the ongoing, generous work of God in us, around us, and through us. Now, if you've read the entirety of Luke chapter 15, I'm sure most of you have, then you know that there's a little more to the story left. The older son comes into the scene who resents what the father has done, his generosity toward the younger brother. And the older son has changed as well, but the change has resulted in a bad attitude that he's going to have to work through. And in a way, I'm sort of glad that the grumpy brother did not enter into the story this morning because I never like it when I relate to him. (laughs) But you know, we've been changed. We have. We're not the same people the day that Todd announced his departure because God has continued to work in us. We don't start this new season in the life of Holy Trinity as the same people we were in October when we first heard the news about Todd leaving. We have been changed. Now, I want to just say this right now. I'm pretty confident in asserting that none of us have been changed as much as Jordan and Susie and the kids because none of us had to relocate during this time. And uh, you talk about disruption um, and coming into a whole new community and I've known some of these people long enough to be very, very confident that they will surround and embrace and love you. I'm sure that those words are true. You know, my earliest church tradition, as I've mentioned before when I've been here, is, uh, is, was in what's called the holiness tradition, which has its, its roots in Methodism, which has its roots in Anglicanism. See how that went? 
Now, our pastors came and went every two to four years, and while it was a bit of a disruptive process for the church and certainly for the pastor's families, it also had a way of solidifying the sense of ongoing life and community among the people of the congregation. In the space between the pastors, life still went on. Birth and there's death. There was sickness and health. There was growth. There was change. All kinds of life just still happened in the midst of that Christian community. There was still this sense that God was with us all along the way, and the adventure would certainly continue once our new leader arrived. But the life of our church didn't stop with one leader and then magically begin with the next. You know, in our story this morning, the lost son's new life didn't begin at the moment when his father embraced him. It began as he left home and as he disrespected the father who had already forgiven him, the father who never stopped hoping for the son's return. The son had gone through some very damaging changes, but he was still being changed even as he made his way home. And I think we all recognize that new life at Holy Trinity won't just begin next week. Certainly it will be a new season, but Holy Trinity has already been in the midst of change as all organic bodies are. You know, the image of the body of Christ is, it's always helpful, but particularly relevant here, I think. Uh, Human bodies are always adapting and changing. Some of our cells replace themselves every few months. Some actually replace themselves every few days, if you can imagine. That means in fairly short order, we are never the same person we used to be. The body of Christ is indeed an organic reality in which Jesus is the center, and it is a reality that's always in flux. But our center does not change, and we can be confident that it is Jesus Christ who binds us together and leads us into new phases of our shared life. You know, one of the most significant changes that the lost son experienced was his movement from poverty and despair to embrace and celebration. His recklessness had made him poor, but the love of his father had made him rich in ways that he had never imagined. The boy's spirit had been all but destroyed in desperate labor, but now he would be restored in life-giving play. In this story, the character of God is revealed to us as one who knows how and why we change and who continues to work his own changes in us, regardless of the circumstances. And each time we come to him, dazed and confused, wondering what's going on, lost and desperate, he welcomes us home again, and he throws another party. So over the months, as in all times, we have been changed. We've been changed by the hand of God, changed as we have related to one another, changed as we've looked forward to a new phase in the life of Holy Trinity. And with the welcome of Jordan and Susie and their family, we celebrate immediately with play as we anticipate the adventure that God has for us in the days ahead. Amen.